Church, take your Bible, please, and meet me in the, um, the letter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to begin this morning with, um, with a question, uh, just for you to think to yourselves, uh, have you ever believed in something, perhaps even firmly believed in something, only to later discover that it may not be true. Uh, for instance, <laughs> I have a friend who believes, a good friend, who believes, firmly believes, in Bigfoot. Now, I don't know where you stand when it comes to Bigfoot, but I'm not convinced. And so he and I have had many, we'll just say, entertaining conversations uh, over the years. And, um, and he has not wavered in his belief one iota. Now, I have to humbly admit that he may be right and I may be wrong. But if I'm wrong... I haven't really lost anything, have I? If I'm wrong, I can simply change my mind and join him in his belief. But if he's wrong, if there is a Bigfoot, uh, then he and all the others who believe uh, such things, uh, they have lost much more. Uh, they have certainly lost the time and the energy they've put into this uh, they've lost that need, uh, needlessly, but they've also lost a degree of credibility, right, uh, in the general public, at least in the eyes of the general public. They lost a degree of, of, um, of credibility. Uh, in the end, however, uh, isn't it true that it just really doesn't matter? Like, like it doesn't matter whether Bigfoot does or does not exist truly doesn't affect how we live one way or the other. Now, church, I know that you did, not come to, you did not come this morning expecting to hear about Bigfoot. Uh, but I share that because, please hear this, there are people today who view the Christian faith like some view Bigfoot. That it may or may not be true but who really cares? And why does it even matter? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is, uh, is answering that question of why it matters and why we should care. The chapter begins with the gospel... As we saw last week, the gospel, remember, is of first importance because it reveals the heart of God, and knowing God is the most important thing in your life. As we learned last week, Christ's death shows just how far God has gone to rescue you from your sins. His burial uh, reminds that our sins are covered for good. Uh, his resurrection is hope and new life. 
and a new outlook on life and the appearance of Christ. The appearance of Christ, even to our hearts this morning, uh, assures us of his continual presence and love. But it all hinges on the resurrection. Some in the city of Corinth were, uh, they questioned whether Christ was actually raised. Some questioned the future resurrection of those who believe in Christ. And still some were saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. There is no life after death. You live and you die and that's it. So Paul is writing to address these very real concerns, concerns that, that, that very real people like us still have today. I, I, would, I would even go so far as to say there are people in your life today, people you know and who know you, people in your life today who really either they don't care about the resurrection or they don't know why they should care. Our passage this morning, verses uh, 12 through 34, is, Paul's, uh, is a continuation of Paul's case for the resurrection. And what we find is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christian faith and, and what I would say the fulcrum on which our lives rise or fall. As we'll see this morning, the resurrection matters because it is the basis for belief in Christ. That's verses 12 through 19. It is the guarantee that we will be raised with him. That's verses 20 through 28. And it is the defining event in human history that brings ultimate purpose to our lives. In the verses 29 through 34. And so it's from this passage that I want to consider these three realities with you today. Let's read the passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our time in the scripture again this morning. So thankful that you are a speaking God, you are a communicating God, you are a a God, the God, who reveals himself to us, you teach us who you are, you teach us more about uh, your heart and your heart for us, and you do so so that that, uh, our hearts might be more fully yours, and our lives might be more fully given to you and your purposes. So will you help us and minister to us and touch us, each one of us, even this morning, as we consider these truths anew? We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would unstop our ears, that you would make us receptive May Jesus Christ be praised in our midst. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So once again, Paul is explaining why the resurrection matters. And the first reason why it matters, according to verses 12 through 19, is because it is the basis for all belief in Christ. He asks in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now obviously some in Corinth were doubting and even rejecting this truth. So in this section, Paul is emphasizing the reality and significance of resurrection by walking them through a series of if-then considerations. If this, then this. That's what he's going to do here in this section. And there are seven of them. I want to walk through them briefly with you. Number one, if there is no resurrection, Paul says in verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. 
Jesus died and was buried, and everyone who was present at his death and burial knew this. Uh, so if not for the resurrection, Paul's just saying, then even Jesus, he remains dead. And if Jesus is dead, then Christianity has died with him. Number two, if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's verse 14. It's just a logical conclusion. If Christ is dead and Christianity died with him, then why talk about it? Why proclaim Jesus as Lord if he isn't? Uh, without the resurrection, there's nothing to say. Now, I, could suppo I suppose we could engage in merely religious activity, as many do. But unless Jesus was raised from the dead, there's no point. And if there's no point, then it's, then it's all just a colossal waste of time. There's no need for the church. There's no need for church ministry. There's no need to teach and preach. There's no need to pray and make disciples. There's no need for worship or worship services if Christ was not raised. Number three, if Christ was not raised, then your faith is in vain. It's also verse 14. If Jesus is dead, then our belief is not in a triumphant Savior, but in a, an obscure Jewish rabbi who happened to gather a small band of followers before he died. And that's it. If he hasn't been raised, then at best he was deceived, or worse yet, he willfully deceived others. And if that's who Jesus was, then your faith in him is utter foolishness. You've been led astray. You've been duped. You've been taken for a sucker. You've, had, uh, you've been sold a bill of goods. You've had the wool pulled over your eyes. You're the victim of a great scam. Uh, you're, you're the victim of a great hoax. The greatest of all hoaxes in history. Everything you believe about Jesus, every hope you've ever had in Jesus is total absurdity if Christ was not raised. Number four, worse still, if Christ was not raised, then we are perpetuating the lie. Verse 15, it says we are misrepresenting God. We're bearing false witness. We're saying things about God that aren't true. You know, if I were to say something untrue about you, even if I sincerely believed it, I would be guilty of bearing false witness and spreading lies, wouldn't I? That's, what, that's the point here. By the way, that's why relativism makes no sense. 
the notion that, that you can believe what's true for you and I can believe what's true for me makes no sense whatsoever. Because it's either true or it's not. Uh, it, it's impossible for something to be true for you and false for me. Paul is saying that it's not our place to redefine or misrepresent truth or the source of truth, which is God. So if Jesus hasn't been raised and yet we tell others he has, we're lying to them and we're casting dispersion on truth itself. Uh, we're misrepresenting God if Christ was not raised. Number five, if Christ was not raised, then you are still in your sins. Verse 17. Now, last week we learned from verse 3 that the very reason Jesus died was for our sins. Scripture teaches that he atoned for sins by burying them on the cross. Though, though we are guilty of sinning against God and others, Jesus, the sinless one, took our guilt upon himself. He died in our place as our divine substitute but his substitutionary death is only effective and advantageous for us if he rose from the dead. Because if he didn't, then the power of sin is greater than Christ's power to atone for sin. And if there is no atonement, no forgiveness or restitution made on our behalf, then you, me, we are still condemned in our sins. Now, for those of us who believe that Jesus died for sins, this is a double blow. This is doubly disheartening. I mean, obviously, there's the blow of sin itself, but there's the the even worse blow, the eternal gut punch, if you will, of thinking you've been forgiven when in fact you haven't if Christ was not raised. Number six. If Christ was not raised, then those who have died have perished forever. Verse 18. You know, one of the most pressing questions, the question I've been asked and discussed privately many times, one of the most pressing questions when losing a loved one to death is whether we will see them again. If there is no possibility of seeing them again, then death is final, and whatever memories we have of them will fade into oblivion. Sometimes the only thing that gets us through the loss of a loved one is the comfort of knowing that they're home with the Lord and that we will reunite with them someday. But without the resurrection, there is no hope of this. 
Those who have died have perished forever if Christ was not raised. And then finally, number seven, if Christ was not raised, then all hope is lost. Verse 19. You see, faith in Jesus is hope for today and tomorrow. Hope in this life and in the life to come. But if this life is it, how sad and pitiful to hope for anything more. Surely you've experienced the earthly disappointment. I'm talking about on an earthly level, on a, on a temporal level, you've experienced the disappointment of hoping for something that never comes to pass. So those who are chronically ill, for instance, maybe you're, you're hoping for a cure that never comes. Or the disappointment of hoping to make the team but getting cut instead. Or the disappointment of being promised a promotion at work only to learn that the position went to someone else. We all know, we all know what it means to, to have our hopes dashed in these ways, in these earthly ways, or ways like these, don't we? And yet, obviously, these pale, these pale to the experience of hoping for life in Christ only to discover that he's not alive. Paul writes in verse 19, if Christ wasn't raised, then we we and all of the larger we if Christ was not raised then we of all people are most to be pitied if Jesus is not resurrected then not only is all Christian ministry in vain not only is our faith in vain, not only do we misrepresent God, not only do we remain dead in our sins, not only have those who've perished died forever, not, uh, but we, we who have staked our lives upon the promise of new life are to be pitied above all. Because that which we've so firmly believed and in which our hopes so firmly lie is, in fact, a lie if Christ was not raised. If Jesus is not alive, this is what Paul is getting at. If Jesus is not alive, then all human hope died with him. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
assures, verse 20, Christ is resurrected. And this reality flips the script entirely. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, because Jesus is enthroned as Lord of all, because Jesus is the risen, triumphant, victorious Savior of the world, our proclamation of Him is not in vain. Our faith in Him is not in vain. We are not misrepresenting God. No, 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 no. We are declaring God's power over death. Uh, Because Jesus died and rose again, our sins are atoned. They are forgiven. They are blotted out if you trust in Him. And those who've already died in Christ will be raised when He comes again. In fact, the Bible says that though they're absent in the body, they are present with Christ even now. We do have this sure hope in this life and in the life to come. Listen, one day, I speak on behalf of all of us, I assume. One day, one day, I will die in this life. But please do not pity me. Now, I would like it if you missed me and remembered me. (laughs) But do not pity me. For by the grace of God, I will not end in death. When I pass from this life and my earthly body is done, I will experience for the first time the unbridled joy of the presence of the Lord up close and personal in a way that I cannot, that we cannot experience right now. And when Jesus returns, even my body will be raised in glory. And so we are not to be pitied for our eyes, the eyes of faith, our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Behold, uh, beloved, when he appears, we shall be like him, we're told, because we will see him as he is. And so according to verses 20 through 28, the second reason why the resurrection matters is because his life guarantees our own. As a crop's first fruits signal the harvest, so the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the future resurrection of all who belong to him. Verses 20 and 20, uh, 21 and 22, 21 and 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, let's unpack this a bit. Adam, the first human, represents the entire human race. He is our our representative. His original sin brought death. From him, we inherit a sinful nature. And therefore, our sins bring death to us as well. But Jesus represents new humanity, 
a new representative, if you will. The miracle of the incarnation is that the Son of God became a human being and was born in our likeness. Therefore, when Jesus died, himself without sin, he bore our sins, not his own, so that all who believe in him would receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. Now, so dramatic is this conversion, the Bible calls it new birth for as in Adam all die in Christ all will be made alive the word all here I think this is important to point out the word all here isn't talking about universalism which is the belief that all people are saved in the end No, rather it's talking about relationship. It's saying that all who are related to Adam will die. Meaning all humanity, but all who are related to Jesus will live. And you are related to Jesus only if you entrust your life to him, if you believe on him by faith, and thus are spiritually reborn by the Spirit of God. So, as verse 23 attests, when Jesus returns, all who belong to him will be raised with him. You see that? And then comes the end. The end of sin and death for good, according to verses 24 and 25. Every rule... Every authority and power, every rival to Christ will be subdued. All his enemies will be completely subject to him. And the last and greatest enemy, uh, verse 26, is death. Death itself will be destroyed and Christ's full and final victory will be realized. Now, already Jesus has broken the power of death, hasn't he? But it's not yet destroyed. We still experience death and its effects, obviously. But when Jesus returns and those who belong with him are raised from the dead, death itself will die. It will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. At that time, the victorious Son of God will deliver the kingdom of God to His heavenly Father, and then Jesus will yield to the Father so that God the Father may be glorified, as stated in verse 28. God will be all in all. All things will culminate in the glory of God as it was at the beginning before the fall. You see, by our relation to Adam, we fall short of God's glory. Yet because of our relation to Jesus, we regain what was lost created by God and for God in Jesus we are restored to God the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our own are you with me now that's a mouthful it's probably an earful 
as we come to this final section in the passage, verses 29 through 34, we see that Paul is essentially saying everything I've just said to you what difference is it going to make in your life what are you going to do with it he's basically calling for response he's stressing how the resurrection is the defining moment in human history and therefore it brings ultimate purpose to your life. And then he lists three ways it does this or he he explains three ways it does this. First, by it addresses your need for hope. It fuels your ministry of the gospel and it awakens you to life with God. Some in Corinth believed in proxy baptism. By the way, church, some still do today. They believe that those who have died without knowing Jesus can still be made to identify with Jesus if someone living is baptized on their behalf. But this practice makes no sense unless you believe that Jesus resurrected, Paul says. That's what he's saying. He's saying, why baptize the dead if the dead aren't raised? If the dead are destined to remain in the grave forever, then it doesn't matter what the living do on their behalf. That's his argument. Now, when Paul talks about this practice of baptizing on behalf of the dead, it's important that we recognize he isn't contoning it. He isn't condoning it or supporting it. He's simply referring to it. This is what they were doing, what some were doing. There's no biblical basis for this practice. But Paul, I love this about Paul. We see this all the time with Paul. Paul's uh, entering into their situation. And he's arguing from their point of view. And he's basically saying, why do you do that if the dead aren't raised? Because the fact that people do this goes to show just how desperate we are for hope. God has placed eternity in our hearts, and so instinctively, don't we? Instinctively, we sense there's something more to life. There's something more instinctively we sense. There's got to be something more than our daily routine. We wake up, we go to work, we go to school, we come home, we, we pay the bills, we go to bed, and we wake up the next day. There's got to be something more to life. There must be something beyond this life, something eternal And the resurrection of Christ assures there is. It also motivates our ministry of the gospel. Paul talks about how even his own sufferings as a Christian 
evidence the resurrection. Paul's desire to reach people with the message of Jesus often came at great cost to him and to those who ministered with him, right? And we're even seeing this in our Acts study. We're seeing that there was a cost to ministering the gospel. It wasn't easy. It was hard work. Because not everybody wants to hear that we are accountable to God. Not everybody wants to hear that our sins condemn us before God. Not everybody wants to hear that we must repent and receive God's provision in Christ. And so Paul and others were frequently met with with opposition. He says in verse 31 that, that he had to die to himself and his creaturely comforts daily. He references here in this passage an episode where he fought with beasts at Ephesus. In, other, uh, in another uh, place in Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about how five times he was whipped by the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was nearly stoned to death with, with rocks and boulders. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He says he was constantly in danger from rivers and robbers, and he was in danger from his own people. He was in danger from outsiders. He was in danger uh, when he went into the city. He was in danger when he was out in the wilderness. He was in danger at sea. He was in danger from those who, who were false brothers. They were false teachers. He was constantly, he says, in toil and hardship. He said, I've, I've suffered many a sleepless night. I've had many times of hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've often been cold, freezing, exposed to the elements. And oh, by the way, apart from all those things, I carry with me all the time, every day, I carry with me the anxiety and pressure of how the churches are doing. And he's saying to us here, If the dead aren't raised, why would I do that? Why would anyone suffer hardship and opposition for the gospel? And the implied answer, of course, is... Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's what motivates our ministry efforts. It's why we give ourselves to the cause of Christ. You see, this life we receive from Jesus is what fuels our willingness to sacrifice our temporal, earthly, creaturely comfort so that others might learn about Jesus through our ministry and therefore come to receive from Jesus what we have already been given. And I just so appreciate how open and honest and really how blunt the Apostle Paul is here because then he says, Essentially, my paraphrase of what he says. 
if Jesus was not raised, let's just chuck the whole thing and get on with life. Let's cast Christianity aside as quickly as possible and pursue as much temporal pleasure as possible. Why would we waste even one more minute on this Jesus garbage if Jesus was not risen from the dead? If Christ was not raised, this is, this is Paul's argument in verse uh, 32 and 33. If Christ was not raised, let's drink deeply of every indulgence without guilt or shame or reservation. Uh, if this is it, if this life is all there is, let's chase every, every whim and fantasy. Why would we tap the brakes? Why would we constrain ourselves? Why would we concern ourselves with anything other than what makes you happy at any given moment? For a day is coming... Paul says a day is coming when this life will end. And if there's nothing, if there's nothing beyond this life, why shackle ourselves with thoughts of sacrifice and restriction? Why not just go full throttle toward every possible hedonistic indulgence? That's what he's saying in verse 32. If the dead aren't raised, eat, get your fill, drink as much as possible because tomorrow you die and no one will give a rip. And so, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what brings ultimate purpose to your life. It assures you that this world isn't all there is. And that whatever temporal, earthly, creaturely comfort you may forego now will be well worth it in the end. And don't be deceived, he says. Wake up. Stop sinning. Stop behaving as if you have no knowledge of God. He basically says, Come on, people, you should know better. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and he calls you to a higher life, a better life, a holier life. He calls you to life with God. No longer are, are we bound by 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever, whatever, because this life is merely a foretaste of what's coming. And this scripture right here is saying that the reality of eternal life should make a difference in how you live today. And so today from this passage, we have explored the, uh, uh, the reasons why the resurrection matter, matters. 
It matters because it is the basis for belief in Christ. It matters because his victory over death is what guarantees ours. And it matters because it brings ultimate purpose to our lives. In that it addresses our need for hope. It fuels our ministry of the gospel. And it brings ultimate purpose and meaning. And so may we each, each one of us, may we receive, may we receive this and respond favorably to it because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christian faith and the fulcrum on which our lives rise or fall. Amen. We bless you, Lord, for our time in this, in, in, in this passage, in your word. I would just pray for myself and for anyone else here who um, who need to hear the call to wake up to be awakened. Would you, oh God, please awaken us to the reality of new life with Christ. And would you do so in such a way that would impact and affect our lives today, how we live life today. Would we pursue holiness and stop sinning? Stop making light of sin. Stop uh, being accepting or excusing of sin. Would you fuel and and, uh, impassion our ministry of the gospel so that this great hope we share can be shared with others? For your great glory. Amen.